Hello, and welcome to the November 2009 edition of Ordinary Means. Uh, you're listening to the podcast at OrdinaryMeans.com. Uh, We're here today. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, uh, with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. And our special guest today is Ken Myers of the Mars Hill Audio Journal. Ken, welcome. Hi, guys. How are you? Well, thank well, you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to be on today and talk to us about uh, culture and the culture's relationship to the ordinary means. Uh, this is continuing a, a conversation we've had over the past uh, three months now on uh, culture and its relationship to uh, church methodology and evangelism. And uh, it's great, Ken, it's great to have you on with us today. Thanks. I hope this is constructive for you guys. I don't know exactly the trajectory you've been on, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, you know, Matt and I were talking about this beforehand, and I think really our goal with this episode is that when uh, our listeners are done listening, that they all uh, turn turn the podcast off and go over to Mars Hill Audio Journal and subscribe. Well, that's the only Amen. reason I'm doing it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> there you go. An uh, hour's investment with us gets you all three of our subscribers. It's perfect, Ken. It's great. You know, I was, yeah, all three of our subscribers. Think of the mailing costs that, that, that you're you're missing here. Right, I'm hoping to see that big bump. So that big bump because <laughs> you were on the Ordinary Means podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, I was really surprised. I was listening to the interview you did with Mark Dever, and uh, he was asking you, you know, doesn't does uh, Whitehorse Inn do some of what you're doing? And you said yes. And I was surprised Mark didn't include Ordinary Means uh, <laughs> podcast as one of those that's doing some of what you're doing. Obviously, his medication was interfering. With <laughs> for sure. Very, very possibly. <laughs> so, well, tell us a little bit. Let's talk about the your program first. Um, who's, your, who's your program for? Well, uh... I, when I got started, I I, uh, I was concerned uh, that um, that educated Christians, Christians who uh, had spent some time uh, finishing college and possibly going to graduate school, uh, that there was no media for educated Christians. I, I watched uh, in the 70s and 80s as Christian media seemed to dumb itself down more and more, and uh, I was particularly concerned for Christians who were working in secular jobs, who were trying to be faithful in the, either in the marketplace or in government or education or wherever it was they work, that they weren't really receiving any kind of, uh, uh, that they, they were not uh, uh, able to participate in any kind of journalistic uh, projects and reading magazines or watching television or listening to radio that that really um, helped uh, shape their thinking properly. Um, I, I Part of this comes from my prejudice, having worked in, in, in broadcasting for a, a time and, and, and then in magazine and journal publication. I really think that our, um, our worldview, our, our way of viewing the world is shaped more by episodic and occasional um, literature or uh, experience than it is b by large tomes. Uh, I mean, there are books that have significantly changed my life, but I know that uh, that a lot of our perception of things is shaped by the short um, uh, bursts of uh, commentary or insight that we get from media. And yes. particularly, this is the case for people who aren't professional thinkers, who don't 
who don't do who don't get paid to read books like we do as pastors, which is yeah, great. Exactly. But, so most people yeah. are, you know, they're getting through life and they, you know, they turn on CNN or the example I used when I when I tried to uh, get funding for this project uh, was uh, Christians who come. You know, I had a lot of friends who worked on Capitol Hill. I was from the D.C. area. Uh, you know, trying to think Christianly about their work on Capitol Hill. Um, when they came home from work, they were not likely to turn on the 700 Club. They were much more likely to turn on the what was then called the McNeil Lair News Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, all media is imbued with with assumptions about uh, all sorts of ultimate and penultimate things. And uh, so, I thought that if um, if particularly if Reformed Christians, but if Christians general generally were really interested in um, promoting Christian thinking, uh, that uh, that there needed to be some kind of journalism that was addressed to uh, to people again who were who were more educated, who were more thoughtful, who were likely to read, um, you know, the op-ed pages in, in major metropolitan newspapers, Wall or, Street Journal, or the Wall Street Journal. In fact, when I was at Eternity Magazine, which was kind of a a stepping stone to what I'm doing now, I, I argued very explicitly to my board, that uh, a board that wasn't really very sympathetic to this, uh, who wanted a more devotional approach. Um, they said that what I was doing was too intellectual. I said, look, if you read the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal on any given day, and these were all businessmen for the most part, um, the content there and, and the arts coverage of the Wall Street Journal, interestingly, uh, not, yeah. a, not a periodical known for its... Uh, you know, artsy audience. Um, the arts coverage was more intelligent and more um, informed and and uh, and uh, complicated <laughs> than what you'd read in in most Christian periodicals. And so I said, look, if we can't aim at least at that level, um, and and still Christians are talking about having an influence in the culture, we might as well just go home because uh, there's no way. Um, there's no way we're going to think uh, th- think well about our cultural lives um, unless we uh, uh, unless we can think at that level or have people among us who do think at that level. Um, so anyway, that's uh, you know my 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 initial effort was uh, was to provide uh, Christian media that wasn't dumbed down, and then secondly, uh, very deliberately, to provide that smarter Christian medium that was uh, committed to an understanding of what makes modern culture distinctive. What What is it about our times that, that, that make them a distinctive challenge for Christian faithfulness and for Christian mission? Um, and I break that down into, into two questions. What, what is it about mo- the experience of modern culture? that makes the gospel remarkably implausible to non-believers, what makes it foolishness to our mm-hmm. contemporaries. And then mm. secondly, what is it about modern culture that makes it um, likely that uh, we uh, won't be as faithful as we ought to be? Or, or maybe a better way to put it is what, what, what would constitute modern worldliness? What does worldliness look like right now? I gave a lecture several years ago about Francis Schaeffer's work and its importance, and I argued that Schaeffer successfully delivered a generation of evangelicals 
from a bad definition of worldliness. Um, people for whom worldliness had meant going to movies or playing cards. Or Fundamentalism. Drinking beer. Yeah, kind of legalistic uh, worldliness. But, but, that, but that his... His heirs and successors have failed to articulate and um, and uh, shape a better understanding of what worldliness is. I think what happened in the 70s is evangelicals decided we had this fundamentalist understanding of worldliness, and that was clearly wrong. Therefore, let's not get to, let's not be concerned about worldliness. Um, but. The New Testament is profoundly concerned about worldliness. Um, Definitely. And and uh, so so unless we have a better understanding of what it of what it does look like, and I think it looks a little different in every era. I think it's 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 signs are different in every era. Um, is this a is this a church uh, issue in the sense that is the church not? Let me well, let me put it this way: Is the church preparing Christians if they want to work in Christian fields? But is the church not addressing those Christians who are who are not in Christian fields? I don't think the church is, and and in fact, I mean that's you know I went to work out of college in 1975 at National Public Radio, and I came out of a a church that had a fairly healthy, robust Christian ed program. Um, I had been, you know, I was the kid who was reading Francis Schaeffer in high school. Uh, and, was this and, in the CMA, the Christian Missionary Well, and No, actually, that was, uh, by, by the time I was in fifth grade, my parents started going to a conservative mainline Presbyterian church, which eventually ended up in the PCA. Oh, okay. And uh, so, um, so, and I'd been introduced to Reformed theology uh, a little bit. It was more of an evangelical congregation than reformed although it became more reformed over time um and uh so i had been really you know i'd read a lot of c.s lewis and i'd read schaefer and i'd read um other apologists i i'd read a lot of uh christian historians and uh and but i still was not ready to deal with the kinds of questions that i was uh i was being faced with at a place like NPR. And after two years working there, uh, it occurred to me uh, that um, if, I w- if I was so ill-equipped, what about most Christian laymen who are going to work in law offices or as MDs or in government or in all sorts of places where a secularized set of assumptions about reality were so dominant um, that it's no wonder that, that uh, Christians are reduced to leaving tracts at the water cooler as as the only um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the only form of of Christian presence because they haven't been um, they have first of all they haven't been instructed in what difference a Christian understanding of reality might make to life Monday through Saturday very often except in very vague um, you know attitude adjustment sorts of ways right uh, but Be- they, behavioral. What I call adverbial Christianity, you know, the the world defines things like justice and work and 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 uh, uh, you know uh, government and these art and these big issues, and then we add things like joyfully or peacefully or pleasantly or, uh, or just so we, or just Christian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we add we add basically um you know 
mood brightening uh, effects to to a way of living and and, uh, and 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 patterns of activity that that have been defined um, by sources that have been antagonistic to uh, to a biblical account of life. So, and I don't think most churches. Uh, I think most churches uh, e- either they ignore those questions entirely, or else they just uh, embrace a kind of um, partisan. They identify with some um, political cause or other, and mm-hmm. uh, and and then they be, they become kind of recruiters for some uh, some political cause. Um, you know, I uh, I don't want to jump ahead of it, but I I really think that um, because of the fact that American Christians have tended to have a low view of the church, that they've they've tended to make America into that corporate body for which Christians ought to care most. And, and, uh, and so they end up, rather than thinking about what would the culture of the kingdom of God look like, what would, what would our cultural life look like as believers, um, we're so preoccupied with, um, with uh, well, either with, sh- with sheer evangelism or with, um, with uh, kind of remaking American culture to fit, to, you know, to be more moral. What I sometimes call making the world safer Mormons. You know, it's kind of <laughs> is, is uh, this is this the the use of the term conservative in the in recent years? Well, it can be, or or it can be. You know, I mean, this happens uh, on both sides. You know, on all all parts of the political spectrum. I mean, for some people, it means being uh, you know staunchly pacifist. But but it means it means opposing American foreign policy principally, or or it means supporting American foreign policy. So so in other words, um, so the church the church becomes a kind of chaplaincy to some political agenda that's already been defined out there, uh, either either one that supports an establishment or one that's opposed to an establishment, but not. But not um, what 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 isn't there is is an articulation of uh, you know I, I like like to say let's imagine that everybody got saved tomorrow how would we live then what would our cultural lives look like right uh, and and I think we do that not principally as Americans but Christians ought to do that principally as as uh, as members of the church that 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 we we have an influence on our neighbors and on the nation that we live in, um, principally when in the local Christian community that, that we're living in a way that actually is, uh, is in accord with, um, well, to, um, borrowing language from Paul, Paul here, in accord with sound doctrine. Um, uh, so, uh, so anyway, that that I no, I don't think most lay people are. I mean, I've, I I talk to law students uh, who never thought about a Christian view of law. I talk to MBA students who've never thought seriously or hard about um, the nature of economic how, how uh, a, a Christian account of life might offer uh, a, a fairly a set of questions that aren't even asked <laughs> in economic life um, uh, today, and uh, so basically, we're trying to figure out how. I think to the extent that churches do <clears throat> attend to 
equipping people for their, you know, Monday through Saturday life, they tend to they tend to uh, encourage them to just they tend to give them coping tools. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that's you know that may be all that all that can be done. I admit a lot of life is damage control, <clears throat> but um, but what ends up happening is that we end up baptizing a status quo culturally rather than recognizing that that status quo is deeply disordered and 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 uh, and that it matters that it deeply it's deeply disordered because it's because God it matters to God about, it matters to God it matters to God <clears throat> and it it matters particularly to God when his people live in a disordered way when they fail to live in a way that's 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 in accord with the kinds of creatures that, that we are. I have thought sometimes as I've tried to engage, I, I pastor a church in Seattle and trying to engage people that there are a lot of people that they're going to get to heaven and they're go, going to go to themselves. Oh, it, this is the way I was supposed to live life. Boy, do I have yeah. a lot to learn. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll all, I mean, we'll all, Yeah, I think yeah. that'll be the experience of all of us, but <laughs> it, it, it would, it's a shame and, and again, it, it doesn't fit the biblical, you know, um, the biblical account of discipleship, which I, right. I, I'm fond of pointing out that the Great Commission is about discipleship, not evangelism. Mm. And it begins with Christ saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, therefore, go make disciples, you know, baptize them, bring them into the fellowship of the co- covenant community. Um Teach them to observe everything that I, the, the cosmic Lord of all things, heaven and earth, I have commanded. You know, the prayer that we pray every week, um, thy kingdom, thy rule, uh, you know, come on earth as it is in heaven. We expect the rule of Christ to be present on earth. And and yet, and yet, uh, we find it easy to, um, to avoid the rule of Christ in all sorts of little ways, uh, not uh, all sorts of ways uh, uh, that concern how we order our experience. And so um, I think that there's a sense in which most American Christians, I borrow this from a Catholic scholar named David Schindler, who, who observed in an article years ago that most American Christians have a faith that the ACLU would love. That, that, mm. that is, they, they basically... Um, they basically believe that their faith has no public consequences, no consequences beyond the interior life. Hmm. Uh, and when I say public, I don't mean just political. I mean outside of the interior life. So, uh, and I think that's that's exactly where the the heirs of the Enlightenment want the church to be. So that that works. <laughs> uh, and uh, every now and then. Christians overstep their boundaries on on some political issue, but but for the most part, I, I think Schindler's right. I think for the most part, um, most people don't come to church in order to to be instructed about uh, what human life, how human life uh, might be different in its cultural consequences. I think they're interested in you know having good relationships and having strong marriages, but but all. All those things are very personal. They're they're at they're at the, the personal or interpersonal level. They're not public, and I th- I think that that's um, I think that that's a um, again that 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 evidences our captivity to to the Enlightenment's uh, 
you know, what the Enlightenment wanted the church to be, which was basically mm-hmm. a, a private a private sphere that had no public consequences. And, 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 and only an internal affair in people's hearts, that's all. Right. And, and right. so Christ is not Lord of anything else except in a very abstract or eschatological way. And, mm. so, so it's... Go, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was gonna say, well, so the church has been removed from the world by the Enlightenment or by Enlightenment thinking. But then at the same time, we have a church that is very much like the world. How do how do those oh, yeah. two how do those two relate to each other? Yeah, well, again, um, I think for, for most for most evangelicals, I think they do believe that, that they do have a concern for people's eternal destiny, and so they 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 see um, the 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 need to um, to get people to to make a profession of faith as as uh, a profession of faith which which <clears throat> will have some personal consequences but 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 may not have many uh, public consequences but nonetheless they see that that's necessary and I think that what has happened is um, in the last thirty years is that um, as our culture has become more post Christian. Um, the church has uh, uh, been perplexed by this, and uh, in an interest of keeping market share, uh, to put it yeah, to put right, it bluntly, <laughs> yeah, um, that the church has decided, well, we're going to have to be more like the world if we want more people to come to church. In other words, we have our institution here that is alongside of. Um, secular institutions it's it's providing a, a kind of optional amendment to 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 the american way of life uh and uh and we and we want to get people to heaven so we we need to get them in here and and that that um so this was the failure of the church growth movement well i think so i mean i think that the church growth movement is in a sense of a continue in a sense it still doesn't it's still like fundamentalism. I think it 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 uh, it still doesn't have a very hearty view of the significance of of culture of cultural life. In other words, I think there's a kind of docetism or gnosticism here. I think there's a kind of uh, an idea that that Christ can be Lord of your soul and Lord of the mm-hmm. spiritual realm, but. Um, but that's all, and so culture is just what we do till the rapture. It's just, you know, it's how we how we kill time until Christ returns until until we die, and uh, so culture is not an arena for discipleship. That is, culture is not a place in which we might obey God or glorify God. Um, culture, something something to put up with. Yeah, it's something we endure until Christ returns. And again, um, I think that I think a large part of this is uh, tied to um, an assumption that that our that salvation involves an escape from our humanity, mm. not not rather than a redeeming of it, rather than yeah. a redeeming or restoration of our humanity. So, mm. if to be human, if God creates us, if God. Uh, if God cares about us as human beings, if God, if the whole project of redemption is to rescue human beings, 
in, in all that they are. Well, all, all that we are is inescapably cultural. We are inescapably, that is, um, we, we are social. We, 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 um, we do things together in relationships. We do things, we build institutions. We, we make art. We write books. We, we, uh, we make music. We, we engage creation and one another in ways that are either fitting to our nature and the shape of creation or ways that are not fitting. Mm. And so, and we, and we inescapably do that. We do this when we worship, we sing songs when we worship, we pray prayers and use language when we worship. Um, uh, so we never, we ne- we always worship as human beings. We never, we're not, we're not, we don't worship God <clears throat> as, as angels. Um, so, uh, so we worship and then we live our lives as, as, as husbands and fathers or wives or, uh, mothers and, um, as workers, uh, and, and we either, and my, my understanding is that the redemption Christ accomplishes should change not just some inner switch in the soul, but it changes, uh, the way we live. It changes how we, uh, how we, uh, engage one another and how we engage creation. And that's, that's throughout the New Testament. That's always that's always um, seems to be assumed when the consequences of discipleship are talked about. There clearly are internal shifts. So the the, the fruit of the spirit, um, for instance, uh, as as described, uh, indicate a kind of internal shift. But the internal shift has external consequences. So when we become more long suffering or patient, that that changes how we in how we treat time in our lives and, and, uh, and, and then how we institutionalize our treatment of time, um, in, in our shared life. And, uh, so, um, so anyway, I think that that, uh, I think that there's in American Christian, you know, I think I'm convinced Gnosticism of one form or another dualism of one form or another is the perennial heresy of John is fighting it. The apostle John is fighting it when he's writing his gospel and and when he writes the epistles, he's, which is why I think he insisted in the prologue why he uses this incredibly offensive language to Gnostics when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among mm-hmm. them. He could have said the word became man, and and that would have satisfied a lot of these dualists who were running around because well okay you could you could you could almost imagine that that some kind of um, connection between the divine and the spiritual aspects of the human being. But the idea that the divine would be connected with the material aspects of human being was just not, not suitable. And, um, and I think that that's been, uh, you know, that's been the challenge that that's been the big challenge, um, throughout the history of, of the church. And it, 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 it's a challenge that's re re energized in the, in uh, the 17th century in Descartes and his, and, and the kind of dualism that emerges in the modern period, which separates, well, it ends up separating uh, reason from embodiment and also separates um, uh, the, 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 the material world from the spiritual world. In, in a, mm. in a, two, in, two follow-up questions just to that, yeah. that, that was really helpful. Um, 
in his recent, uh, fairly recent book, um, Andy Crouch, I know he was on the audio journal with you um, yeah. and, and appreciated the book much, much to enjoy there, much to be learned. I think for most people, uh, it's sort of a new thought world, I suspect for most people, especially those who maybe not spent time listening to you. Yeah. Um, it seems like one of the big takeaways from that book and one of Andy's real uh, – one of the things he wants to do is uh, stop just critiquing things and go make some culture. Right. Which I think is is a – it's a helpful corrective that is – we don't just sort of stand on the sidelines as like armchair right. quarterbacks and just go, you could have thrown that ball a lot better. Go right. go write an actual right. novel, high-quality song instead of just critiquing what's going on. Um, is that all that you're trying to say? Well, uh I mean, that's the first step for me. I mean, in, uh, well, in other words, first of all, I want to overcome, I want to overcome that dualism, which, which, um, which, uh, thinks that, that, that trail activity is, 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 uh, is just a waste of time or, or at best a kind of strategic evangelistic tool. Uh, so I want to overcome that. And, and, and I want to say that it's, 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 it's good and it's deeply meaningful. But right. but I also want to say that um, so I want to overcome that dualism. But I also want to say that that uh, that there's a particular shape that culture has taken. That I want to make a historical argument that mm-hmm. culture has taken specific direction. That there's specific momentum that we're kind of uh, tied up in now. That 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 spins any that well that spins our culture making in predictable ways. And that part of what we have to do is not only make culture, but um, to make good culture <laughs> so that what we perceive, I'll, I'll, let me give some concrete examples. I mean, some people might say um, from this that, uh, okay, so let's, since culture making is good, let's now look and see what forms of culture are really popular now. And let's do those kinds of things. So graphic novels. Oh, that's cool. Let's do graphic novels. Um, well, uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with graphic novels, but I think it's a remarkably limited form. And uh, and and if, if what happens because of this enthusiasm for culture making is is that a whole lot of Christians end up spending time in uh, the creation of really diluted. <laughs> uh, forms of culture uh then uh then i then it, I, you know we haven't really uh i mean maybe that's a necessary first step but i'd like to see somebody you know write a really important novel not just a, a kind of graphic novel or or um so in other words i, I, I and here I'll, I'll i'll expose one of my big cultural concerns i i've been involved in music all my life and and I really think that we live in a really musically retarded era. Um, I think that um, people. Hey, educated, hey, amen. We've Matt and I have talked yeah, a good good yeah, deal educated, about that. Yeah. Educated people know less and care less about becoming musically literate uh, than than at any time you know in the last you know five hundred years or more, maybe more. Uh, from Plato on, uh, to be educated was to understand how music worked, and 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 and, uh, and now music is merely. In fact, I think music is a great uh, uh, kind of object lesson of of uh, of of some of the eras of modernity, because 
we regard music as something that's purely subjective and purely a matter of personal taste, that all musical judgments are purely arbitrary and subjective, which is a view that was never held, uh, either in the classical period or by Christians, uh, well into the 18th century, uh, and, and still is not held by, <laughs> by many. Uh, so, uh, but what has happened is, um, you know, we, we, we live, so we live in a culture in which, um, uh, musical illiteracy is normal. And, uh, rather than fight that, what, what I think churches have done <clears throat> for the last 30 years is basically say, well, how do we reach musically illiterate people? Um, uh, and, and, and so, uh, so rather than saying, okay, here's this wonderful gift of God, the only thing, the only cultural activity that we know for certain is part of our eternal, <laughs> our eternal destiny, because there are choirs there, clearly. And, uh, and, and here's this incredibly, um, complicated, mysterious, uh, intimate, um, uh, opportunity for combining uh, spirit and body. I mean, it's it, music's just an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and even more, uh, well, at least as compelling as the fact that it was the church and the church's understanding of what music was that gave rise to the, to the uh, tradition of art, art music, let's call it that in, in, in the West. So uh, here you have this incredible historical legacy of, of, of carefully crafted music, you know, a thousand years of it almost that, that, uh, that uh, explored the kind of thing music was to the glory of God for much of that history. And, uh, and, and, um, and churches around the country have basically decided that we can basically forget all that, uh, in the interests of, uh, finding music that people like, <laughs> that people, that all these musically mm. illiterate people happen to like, their, their affections having been shaped largely by advertisers. And, uh, so who have a vested interest in selling them something, not necessarily yeah, developing exactly. them culturally. Yeah, who are selling right. them something and who are selling them an account of themselves. That is not just selling them a pair of jeans or an iPod, but who are selling them an account of human freedom and liberty uh, and uh, autonomy. Uh, and what human flourishing looks like. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and, and, and so that's why, you know, our, our, a lot of popular music today is – is characterized by an uh, you know an absence of 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 uh, of let's call it refinement. Okay, to, to, so people say, "Oh, I like this singer songwriter because he's so authentic." Uh, authentic meaning it sounds like he hasn't. It sounds like it's all natural. That is, it sounds like nothing has been refined. Um, which is a really odd. I, I'm struck how how we use this word authentic. Now, meaning that to be authentically human is to be almost instinctual, <laughs> which is an hmm. odd thing. Uh, it, 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 to, to be authentic means to have the absence of artifice or the absence of art, the absence of of, of crafting and and work. Um, so, so, so somebody is regarded as authentically human if they don't seem like they've restrained themselves at all. 
which again is what we used to say was authentically bestial that that someone was was behaving in a kind of bestial manner so so that and again this is a this is a this has happened since the 19th century this this notion of what constitutes human authenticity notions of authority you know the 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 story of what has happened in music in the 20th century both in art music and in popular music is a kind of microcosm of what's happened in culture at large. And the the reason I think this is a good test case is because the one art form that churches do use regularly and that and that and that Christian communities have the opportunity to offer some direction in is music. Is music, uh, yeah. And yet it, it's it's the uh it's the form that in which churches have entirely capitulated to a cultural status quo. Uh, without any kind of, uh, without any kind of asking, you know, uh, somebody like Rick Warren will say, uh, well, you have to have upbeat music. You have to have fast music to make a worship service popular. And I want to ask why, 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 why is it that we prefer fast music? What is it about fast music and loud music that why at this moment in history is that assumed to be the most vitally engaged mode of music? Wasn't always the case. Um, is there is there a positive element there though in in that we want to be stirred? Well, uh, possibly. Although, see, I I think that uh, again, classically, um, it was always assumed that to to be stirred merely through sensation was a dangerous thing. Uh, and and music rather than stirred, engagement of the mind. Yeah, to be stirred without the engagement of the mind. Now, not that, not that, not that the two can be entirely separated, but but to be stirred principally through um, through the senses and, and through again through the through the um, un, un, let's say the 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 uh, the instinctive use of the senses. I mean, it's obvious that something fast and loud gets your attention. But uh, something slow and carefully developed. I mean, music that is, uh, you know, people sometimes say to me, uh, you just don't like emotional music in, in worship. And I say, the problem is this music isn't emotional enough. It, it, it lacks mm. an emotional palette. I mean, some of the most intensely stirring music that I can imagine is is contemplative and slow and quiet and reflective and and uh and something that takes time to build the emotional payoff so so you can be stirred um there are different ways of being stirred and there are being there are ways of being stirred which is just like yelling at my dog <laughs> i can get my dog's attention through through loud fast things but as a human being there are ways of being stirred that are peculiar to us as human beings who are um creatures who are for whom rationality and uh, and our life of the senses are are uniquely intertwined, and that's the thing about music. The music music combines rationality in its fullest, richest sense, and the life of the and the life of the body. And and so um, when when music becomes reduced to to just well, when it comes reduced on either side, a lot of a lot of 20th century classical music made music into a kind of intellectual exercise that that was devoid of any kind of uh, uh, 
bodily joy. <laughs> and it, or form, it, for that matter. Yeah, well, sometimes form, but sometimes the form was so abstract, it was more like reading math than it was um, uh, than experiencing something with the body. And music has to be experienced with the body. And then on the other extreme, we have music that, that involves mere you know, only the body, so that, uh, and this is, I think, the difference between, uh, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why most contemporary popular music is dominated by rhythm rather than melody or harmony, as, as, because uh, m- melodic, melodic, I somebody I interviewed once who said, melody makes you smart, rhythm makes you dumb. Melody always involves a kind of attention to, to a kind of musical argument, and so does harmonic development. So, so when 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 rhythm becomes a dominant element, or when we insist on a kind of insistent rhythm rhythmic quality, what we're doing is we're again I think we're dumbing down the music. We're reducing the the rational component of music. And and again I, I, I you know underscore this. The the thing uh, the reason I think music is so remarkable is because like the incarnation, um, and like human nature. Um, the the spiritual and the uh, and the embodied are and the and the rational uh, you know the word is made flesh in a sense in in in, in music that and so uh, now this is something that you know countless people have written about over the years and and, uh, and so theologians and uh, philosophers have and composers I mean. Bach is clearly working through this in, in his in, in the way he's writing music and, and a lot of other composers as well. So anyway, this this is you know back to your main question. I just you know go on at length on this because this is an issue about which I care a lot, but which I often I have to be careful talking about it because people people are so emotionally engaged in the music they like that that you know it'd be easier to criticize their mothers. Than criticizing the music they like, and right, so, right. so, so, uh, but uh, again, I think it is a good case in point where, where rather than resisting a kind of declension, cultural declension, uh, and, and and basically offering an alternative and richer way of making culture, the temptation may be to say, well, let's take the cultural status quo as it is now, and and basically do something Christian in that. Not that it's I mean, it, it's not impossible to do that, and and not saying that uh, the, that that everything about the cultural status quo is is wrong, but but by not being aware of the larger patterns uh, uh, of of the cultural status quo, I think um, it's it would be hard to do something unconventional in in resisting those patterns. It's um, maybe just a, a follow-up point, and then I'll ask you a question from a completely different angle. But I, I, I don't want to leave right. music just yet, Matt. I have one more. Oh question no, that's okay. Music. No, that's all right. I got one thing to say on music, and then we'll go one more spot. Maybe um, time's going fast, but amazingly fun. Um, I think that that maybe maybe the tension here is kind of like Jesus does with each one of us. He grabs us where we are. And accepts us on his righteousness based on his sacrifice, where we are, messed up, disordered. Um, but he doesn't leave us there. Right. And, and I think that's the tension is uh, I live in Seattle. And, um, you know, 
grunge and and uh, I mean there's a good reason that Mark Driscoll's drawn uh, almost 10,000 people across their sites to church yeah. because at least culturally um, it, it may not be that indie rock is the most culturally refined version of uh, the Western musical tradition um, but at least taps into where people are right and yeah. um, I think that's the tension point is tapping into yeah. where people are right because of course Paul does that I'm in act 17 right sure. now preaching and you know he yeah. taps into where they are but he doesn't tell you all of it's good well, and he definitely wants to take you someplace else yeah, he definitely wants to take you somewhere else and even in act 17 um, you know he's invited to speak about the resurrection because they thought it was curious and again put yourself in the point of view of these greco-roman listeners um, who 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 believe, who are good dualists, almost right. certainly, they don't believe, the idea that a bodily resurrection could somehow be redemptive is absolutely deplorable to them. And so they're kind of intrigued. How could he possibly defend this? And what I find interesting in that is that he, he, he actually, rather than, rather than temper the, the offense of the message of resurrection, the sermon starts off pretty early talking about God creating things. And I think he even uses the language of, he, he, he anthropomorphizes God and, mm-hmm. and suggests that God uses his hands to make, to make man. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that is, that, that's offensive too, because again, as we see in later Gnosticism, um, you know, there were even Christians or alleged Christians who wanted to basically deny God as creator that, the, the, the idea of a redeemer God was fine, but the idea of a creator God was really a problem because the act of creation was also much too intimately involved with the material world than was metaphysically correct for, for that kind of dualism. So, yeah, he does meet them where they are. He quotes their poets. He shows right. some facility with that, but he offers a paradigm shift. Right Absolutely. From the and, yep. and, so, and so here's the question I have is, what kind of paradigm shift? Now, I see, my sense is that the reason there aren't any string quartets at Mark Driscoll's church is because he finally, uh, I, I, I don't know the man, I've never met him, but my, my sense is the, the idea that, that the idea of cultural decline or cultural uh, standards is, is, is probably not even on, on the radar. So the idea that there might be some forms of culture that would be better than others some forms of musical expression that would be more apt modes that, that utilize what music is more fully than others. Or the idea is that, that there's milk and meat. Let's use that biblical metaphor, that there's musical milk and musical meat. My hunch is <clears throat> that's not on the radar. And, and, and to the extent that that's not on the radar, then he and many others have basically endorsed the modern understanding of beauty or the modern understanding of, of aesthetics, let's put it that way. And, and, uh, and, and that is a huge mistake, I think, to, to endorse that. Now, again, accept people where they are, that's fine. But then how do you take them? How do you, and how do you exemplify? Uh, you know, after I wrote All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, I wanted to write a book on music in the church particularly on worship and and I the snarky title I thought this was children's church came to mind um because uh, <laughs> and obviously it's a good thing I didn't write the book but uh, so in other words how do you how do you see I historically historically the discipleship of the church if you look back in the first you know 5 centuries of the church 
when when new believers came to the church, they knew they were babies. They were told they were babies. They were told you have so much to learn. And so they were seekers, and then they were, uh, you know, catechumens, and and they weren't even baptized for a couple of years because uh, until they had matured to a uh, to a certain point. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily my my own sacramental theology, but the point was, it was it was clear to every newcomer that they were babies, and that there were all sorts of that there was a way of life they needed to be schooled in. My impression is that most churches don't give that impression, that, that that new believers are babies who have a lot to learn. Now, maybe they have a lot of theology to learn. Maybe that, you know, they that, that's an impression that we seminary graduates love to give to people. <laughs> uh, but, but not a lot idea, to learn culturally. But not a lot to learn culturally. And, that, and, and what that suggests is that, that the gospel doesn't have any cultural consequences. The gospel has, you know, there's theology to learn. There's a body of ideas but but the idea that that those ideas actually inflect our practices in some way um, uh, is is generally not you know we basically accept the practices of the American way of life, and we offer ideas uh, that that augment the american way of life and and again that 's why I say you know there 's always the danger of just becoming a kind of chaplaincy or or the theology club for the American way of life. And that's not – well, I want to suggest that um, that the gospel has bigger consequences than that uh, mm. and, and that the church should be a community. You know, I, I, I've talked about music. We could talk – we do the same thing about language. Um, and, you know, one of my crusades is to try to get um, Christians to take poetry more seriously and to realize the great gift that language is from God. I think music and language are two of the greatest cultural gifts God has given us. And I think not coincidentally, in the 20th century, in a post-Christian century, music and language have been the victims of all sorts of abuse and neglect in, in our both high culture and popular culture. Uh, and so the, uh, my fantasy is that churches would be communities where music and language are uh, exalted. They're they're received as gifts gratefully, and and the and the and the capacities of those gifts are lived out in the lives of people. So that I, you know, in my fantasy life, I imagine that Christians are people who um, who have the richest linguistic experiences, mm-hmm. who 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 write and speak and read uh, uh, with with a kind of a, attentiveness to language which you know it, it's not it's not that i want people to be uh brainy about it i mean my grandparents probably <laughs> who didn't finish high school probably used language more carefully and attended to language more carefully than a lot of college graduates do today um you know our use of language is is profoundly dumbed down also and that's partly because of our uh Casual. We celebrate the casual. I did an interview with, I don't know if you heard, a great, great interview. Or, well, it was a great book called um, Doing Our Own Thing by John McWhorter. The subtitle mm. was uh, The Degradation of Language and Music and Why We Should Like Care. Uh, <laughs> yes. My favorite subtitle ever. It's, it's sitting on my desk right now as we yeah. speak. And, and the point that McWhorter makes is that our use of language, we, we, we have come to, to embrace... A, a casual 
a, ca a casual quality in our use of language that is unprecedented. Even in really primitive, even in primitive tribes, they're not as casual as modern Americans are. That there's a capacity for formal speech um, that's present in, in some of the most primitive of cultures. Uh, and he argues that the main reason for this is because um, we're suspicious of authority, and and mm. and we we prefer informal modes of speech, and informal modes of dress, and informal modes of music, and informal modes of dance, and informal modes of eating, and all sorts of other things, because of the fact that we're we think we should be allowed to do our own thing. The, to impose standards of propriety is to uh, is to force individuals to recognize some authority that pre-exists their own desires, and particularly since the 1960s, he argues. You just can't get away with that in American culture. So, again, I find it odd that American churches would embrace a casual, casual habits of speech in worship and otherwise, uh, when when the very cultural dominance of those casual attitudes of speech is, is a is a mode of expressing. Uh, antipathy toward authority. It's an odd way to get people to honor a Lord, <laughs> to, to, yeah, to, yeah. to use a cultural form that, that's steeped in the... Uh, now, I, again, I'm not saying that everybody who grows up in that casual culture um, has that uh, kind of antinomian mentality, but I do think that it's hard to go beyond the antinomian mentality if we don't have practices in our everyday life. In which that affirm that that, that and affirm that exactly that, is, that, that exalt affirm, it that affirm the propriety of propriety or or, or that, that, that affirm the, the 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 legitimacy of authority. So the idea that you know, and you do this with your kids, you teach them table manners, partly because you want to keep the table clean, uh, but also because it's a good thing for them to learn to defer to others. It's a good thing for them to honor some kind of cultural code that that is a shared social code. Um, uh, and again, it, to, for them not to put themselves first all the time, and so there are lots of ways in which we learn that. And and uh, and again, for those practices, for the church not to be aware of how those practices matter. Not and again, I want to stress this: this is not a legalism. I'm not saying that you know we don't do this because people become more righteous by by following these things. It's just that this is the way human beings. This is the way human life. This is the shape human life takes because we're embodied, because we're social, because we live in space and time, that human life takes certain forms through which embodied experience and our beliefs mesh. And, 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 the, and there's not an infinite amount of variation in, 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 those, in, those, uh, in those kinds of uh, relationships so that you, you can't... Uh, uh, you know, formality or ritual serves a certain kind of purpose. It communicates something. It's meaningful. It's not, uh, and uh, and there's no escaping that. And I get that's again because because we're embodied. We're we're embodied. So if the, so the anyway, gospel, uh, if the gospel is rehumanizing us, would you be comfortable with that language? Yeah, I think so because so, I think that I think so. I mean, I, I uh, unless I'm not supposed to be, tell me. <laughs> but I, I, I don't no, know. I, I just made it up. To put it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's yeah. I mean, because and I th that's one of the reasons. Um, you know, the resurrection. Uh, 
One of the neglected doctrines in American Christianity, and maybe not just in American Christianity, is the continuation of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Preach it, uh, brother. That 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 uh, that the incarnation isn't over. That that that, yep. that Christ, as the God Man, is the one making intercession for us, and and hence, um, and that is a uh, to me that. Uh, that's a confirmation of the fact that Christ's redemptive work is for our whole humanity. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. I think there are seven stories. There are seven post-resurrection narratives in the Gospels, I think. And in two of them, Jesus is eating. In one of them, he makes breakfast on the beach, which is the coolest thing. <laughs> the idea that the, the, the risen Christ is, is, is like, is cooking, making a fire and, you know, Cooking these fish on the, on the beach is is just amazing, amazingly human action, uh, and and so uh, so the, 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 I, I mean I th- and and uh, Dick Gaffin, who, whose book you may know, the centrality of the resurrection in, in, in Paul's teaching. I'm bungling the title, but that he he points out that what the resurrection demonstrates is not Christ's divinity, uh, but the resurrection is significant in light of. Uh, Principally, what what we have in common with Christ—that is, our humanity—because mm. Paul always talks about Christ being raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead, just as we are to be raised from the dead. And so, so it, you know, we behold in Christ's resurrection, we behold the reality of our new life. And the new life is a human life. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not an angelic life. And that's why. You know that's why I say culture matters. That's why culture matters mm-hmm. because because um, because our redemption is is to a fulfilled humanity, a rescued humanity, and and uh, and, and and then all of the good things that that come with being human are are made you know are are given a new possibility, and 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 a lot of those good things are are what we call cultural. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Sean, we're almost up on time, but can I ask one more question? That's off music. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, Ken, how would you respond, you know, in this whole, um, you know, this has been the year of of, uh, trying to think through culture more carefully, both as a pastor and as a, just as a person, you know, reading the literature, reading Carson's Christ and Culture Revisited, reading Andy Crouch, uh, reading Unfashionable. It's kind of been a theme for the last six months or so. One of the arguments that's read out there by guys who would, or spoken by guys who would be, uh, what I'm just going to call a high two kingdoms view, okay. okay, is that there actually is not a distinctively Christian way of doing ex vocation. Yeah. Even that we should resist that because that would yeah. be to mix the kingdoms. Right. Yeah. And that if you were, for example, you know, this is the anti Abraham Kuyper, but for example, right. if you right. were to be a politician, um, your Christian thought actually should not come in. You right. should just be yeah. as pragmatic as you could be. Can you interact with that thought yeah. a little bit? I, first of all, um, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in natural law and, and I believe. Let me put it this way. I believe, uh, let me say for the sake of argument, I'll agree with that, that there isn't a distinctively Christian uh, view of, say, politics or art or anything. But but there are distinctively human. That is, that is there are dehumanizing possibilities in those spheres. And that, and that our commitment to sustaining 
that, that Christians are necessarily humanists. That is, Christians are necessarily in, uh, interested in in um, uh, sustaining the uh, the best for human beings as human beings. Okay. Yep. Now, having said that, I also do believe that I don't think that I think that any effort to understand the human apart from Christ is is is, is falls falls short. Uh, and not, yep. not that it's wrong, but that finally, I do think that um, that we only understand our humanity fully by uh, by understanding. Uh, I, I think that the biblical account of life helps us understand, helps us correct our understanding of our humanity. So I think that there are there are insights into humanity that come from all sorts of cultural sources through general revelation. But I think I I do think that. Um, that there are correctives uh, that that uh, that that Scripture offers to our to understanding our humanity that that are are just not available elsewhere and and so um, and again that's not to say that there's a distinctively uh, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's distinctively Christian I get let me put it the other way if if Colossians if Paul what does Paul mean when he says all things uh, in, in Colossians one, when he talks about all things are are through him and for him and to him, I can't remember how, what the order of the preposition mm-hmm. is, but he, he, that whole passage, that whole hymn to uh, that Paul, I gather, borrowed from somebody else. <clears throat> um, the, the gist of that hymn seems to seems to be that that creation can't be properly understood unless you understand it in a Christocentric form. Mm-hmm. And I think that it has as much to do with Christ's identity as creator as it does his identity as redeemer. And this is something where I, I challenge my two kingdom friends. I think there's a danger in, in, in two kingdoms thought of separating Christ as creator from Christ as redeemer mm. it, more than the New Testament does. Mm-hmm. I think that the New Testament speaks ju- just as the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, identify God as creator and redeemer uh, in a non-modalistic way, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. God is both creator and redeemer at once. And Christ is creator and redeemer at once. And in fact, redemption is a recovery of creation. Redemption is is, is a restoration of creation. Um, so uh, so I, do, I think that it's, uh, I, I think we need to be careful from separating creation and redemption too starkly. I think that was Marcion's mistake. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that, uh, so, so I'd say that uh, there's a sense in which if by distinctively, I'd say there, there, there is, there is, a, there ought to be a Christocentric politics. There ought to be a Christocentric aesthetics. Um, and that uh, Christians may not be the only ones who recognize, I certainly believe this, that Christians will not be the only ones who can recognize um uh, p- properly human and, and hence Christocentric uh, realities. I, I, I think that's that's what that's what the Reformed idea of common grace means. That mm-hmm. that, 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 that non-believers will have the capacity to perceive that because it's because they perceive things that are built into the structure of creation, which is built into the structure of creation by Christ. <laughs> right. So there's no getting away from Christ. And, and I, I tell you, I became kind of uh, uh, excited by this when I read Colin Gunton's work, who who points out that there's a tendency 
for many Christians to think about creation as if we're Unitarians, that, that, that there's always been a tendency or long been a tendency. Impersonal, not Impersonal. Trinitarian. Yeah, and and yeah, not Trinitarian. So so uh, so we we think of we think that God the Father made everything, and then things got screwed up, and then God the Son came and and paid the penalty, and then God the Holy Spirit comes and affirms it. So there's this kind of se- sequential Trinitarianism. Hmm. But you know the scriptures clearly teach uh, you know over and over Old Testament, New Testament, particularly obviously in the New Testament that 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 creation is is a Trinitarian. That the creation is a Trinitarian act, and so 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 we don't we don't separate. We I think we separate Christ from the the both the fact of creation and from the uh, the the ordering of creation. Uh, to, to do that too starkly uh, is is to make a mistake. Mm. Very helpful. Thank you. Well, Ken, we are uh, we're at time. We have uh, probably thirteen or fourteen thousand more questions that we we would love to ask you. <laughs> really, really appreciate this, particularly. Well, I hope it's helpful. I, I hope I didn't drone on too much. I, no, no, very, very helpful. much so. And I, I would. Time, I'm in the middle of writing a script, so I'm I'm really like intensely. <laughs> I'm not on any drugs or anything, but (laughs) (laughs) we caught you on a good day. Is that what you're saying? I guess on a good day. You're focused. Yeah. (laughs) The, well, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with something you said at the beginning. You said that really your program is for intellectuals. And, and I think certainly, I mean, Matt and I both have postgraduate degrees, but we, I mean, the, the kinds of things that we've been talking about here this last hour, this is stuff that is, you know, right there where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, well, I, th- I, I think it is. I mean, I, I said educated people. Mm. And, and I, and, and, but, I, but, I don't, so I, but I don't mean intellectuals. So okay. I, don't mean, I don't mean intellectuals. And in fact, I, I tend to, uh, you know, some of our most enthusiastic subscribers are, 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 are people who don't deal with ideas for a living. I've got, you know, dentists and homeschooling moms and real mm-hmm. estate people and yeah. telephone yeah. workers. And so, and, and I do think, you know, I, I've, I've always felt that, um, that I really am interested in, in, in how the church lives, not just in ideas. I mean, I, and I, you know, even though I'm a graduate of Westminster, I really think that uh, life doesn't end with theology. So, so and that and that theology serves life. Theology really does. You know, truth serves practice, and, and or it uh, should. It should. It should. And and so so it you know because and again I think that's um, that we're always called to godliness and faithfulness, not just to orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so orthodoxy is never an end in itself, uh, by itself. Are and you are you going to be doing more with this issue of authority? Probably, yeah, uh, probably. It, it comes out a little bit. I've got a discussion by David Bentley Hart on our idea of freedom, and I think that's the best way to to deal with it. Actually, is to mm-hmm. is to get at it through um, how we think about freedom. What does it mean to be free? Uh, and uh, but I, I've done I've actually done this in a couple of uh, lectures I've, uh, I've given on authority. I actually taught a Sunday school class at a PCA church in Jackson earlier this year, and that was the the lecture was on how do we think about authority. But is that you know, on the I, web? I, uh, probably not. 
But okay. you know what? We're I tell you, you can pray that we get some funding. We're trying to get some funding to do some special projects that are topically focused like that. It mm. just takes mm-hmm. a lot of time to pull that together. And I don't have any. I don't really have any help here now. I've got one assistant who books my interviews and manages all our computer stuff. And, but I don't really have any people doing editorial work. Mm. And so what I'd like to do is get funding to do a series on big themes like freedom and authority or history or, uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff on food and I'd like to pull all hmm. that together in a, a package. And um, I remember well, the come. program on the slow food movement that just really rocked my world. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And, I remember where I, I was on the road listening to it because it was like, uh, wow, okay, now I'm starting <laughs> to get into this a little bit. Now I get yeah, where he's going. Yeah. You know? That would be another example. You know, I, I, when people say, well, how do you think churches ought to look countercultural? Language, music, food, time, yep. and inter, intergeneral, intergenerational relationships. Yep. That's another one. That, uh, well, that, yeah, that, that relates that, right back to authority. Yeah, yep. exactly. Okay. And, uh, yeah, what does the fifth commandment, what, what, what are the cultural consequences of the fifth commandment? Mm. And uh, so, anyway, well, g- great to talk to you guys. Oh, and, yes, thank you, Ken, very much. I, I was at the PCA General Assembly this year, I, my first trip to Disney World, actually. But, uh, oh, um, there's I, a cultural experience for you. I know, I know. <laughs> and we, I may go next year. I don't know if you guys go to GA or not, but I may I may be there next year. So maybe. Oh, that'd be great. Maybe Definitely. we can grab yeah. you there or something. Okay. Love, we'll get Sounds some good. food. Yeah, I'd love it. Some slowly, some culturally Absolutely. rich Absolutely. food. Absolutely. Okay. Take care, Ken. Thank you so much. Okay. God bless your work. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.